right. Well, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. Uh, this morning, a little bit different in Isaiah. We actually get to a few chapters where it's narrative instead of uh, prophetic or poetic, if you will. So I'm, I'm excited about this uh, little change up in the, uh, in the text. And so uh, let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts because the title of this morning's message is A Battle for the Heart. And let's pray. Lord God, we once again just uh, thank you so much for this morning that you've given us. And I pray that we would really uh, take time to understand what an awesome privilege it is to worship the Lord of all creation, the Lord of the universe. And as we sing, Lord God, may we uh, continue to bring you glory and honor as we worship your holy name, a name that is above all names. And uh, so we just uh, thank you for that, Lord God. We thank you also for this time that we can gather together uh, in this place around your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every heart this morning. Uh, each of us, Lord, you know us, are at a different place in our lives at different times and seasons. And uh, we all go through all sorts of things, Lord God, and different things battle for our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Lord God, that this morning we would surrender them to you. And Lord God, as we go through the text, we would hear how we surrender our heart to you completely. And even when there's an all-out war, to uh, take our hearts away from you. So again, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us now. And it's in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 36. There's a... I don't know how many Lord of the Ring fans we have in here, but they, all right, John. So John will call me out if I misquote it, so I'm just sorry. And <laughs> there's, a, there's a great scene in the second Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, called The Two Towers. I'm like on eggshells now, I'm going to say that. Gandalf, you know, he's the, good, the wizard, you know, the, the white, I think he's called the white wizard. I'm just going to stop. Trying to think things. Anyways, John, can you like turn around? <laughs> Anyways, Gandalf is, uh, there's a big battle that's going to happen over Helm's Deep, which is a, a stronghold for the good guys, so to speak. And, and I just remember this line. He goes, the battle for Middle Earth is about to begin. Like, it's all out war over the entire earth. You know, all forces of evil, uh, Sauron sending all forces of evil out towards Helm's Deep to destroy uh, men. And as you think of that, in a, in a way that we cannot see, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against it's a spiritual battle, the day that you were born, believe it or not, or even probably before that, there was a all-out battle. The battle for your heart had begun. And it rages on, and it intensifies, believe it or not, the closer that you get to God. The enemy has sent out all his forces. He holds nothing back to attack you and me and all the people that we love to keep our hearts from the Lord. That, we're going to see that this morning in Isaiah chapter 36 as a parallel to what's going on here in the text. So just know as, as we're talking about the king of Assyria just you know, using all his might, all his forces to get Jerusalem 
to surrender their hearts to Him, know that behind the scenes it's a similar battle going on for your heart and for my heart, even as believers. The enemy doesn't stop, right? Scripture says that, you know, Satan is like a, a, a lion, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and he never stops. And so you'll see that, and just we'll look at some of the tactics that are used by Assyria, and we'll parallel them with the, tactics, with the tactics that are used against you and me and against those who we love. And so with that kind of set up, let's go into uh, chapter 36, and just by way of a historical uh, setting, uh, as we've been talking, Isaiah has been warning Judah over and over again to submit to God, to give their hearts to God. And here in chapter 36, we're actually going to see the story play out as Assyria has now gone through the northern tribes of Israel, has attacked the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, and is at the door of Jerusalem, or Helm's Deep, if you will, to attack um, Judah. And King Hezekiah and all his people are locked in there. And so this is the scene, this is the scenario that is taking place here in Isaiah 36. So let's, let's read just the first few verses, and then we'll talk about it as we go through it. It says, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the cities of Judah and seized them. So he's seizing all the cities as he's making his way for the capital city of Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to meet him. So there's the scene. So Hezekiah has sent out his attendant, uh, to speak for, it's not Hezekiah, excuse me, Shennacherib has sent his attendant to speak for him to the king of Assyria, or to the king of Jerusalem, uh, Hezekiah. And so he's out there with all his army, full forces, and he's wanting him to surrender, really come back to him, because what has happened is Hezekiah was paying tribute to the Assyrian king so that he would stay away from him and let him be. And so what happens is Hezekiah decides, that, hey, we're going to stop paying tribute to the Assyrian king. I don't need him anymore. I'm going to go down to Egypt and have Egypt protect me. And then I also have the God of Judah and he'll protect me. You know, this is part of the problem here. Hezekiah was trusting Egypt and God or trying to, you know, have two, his feet in both worlds. And so Assyria is like, no, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to send my forces. And he starts attacking one by one, and now he's at the city gates. And so this is the speech uh, that Rabshakeh uh, says to the representatives of Judah in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And then Rabshakeh says to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? So from the very beginning, he's going to pose to him a few challenges to 
How dare Hezekiah thinks that he can stop paying tribute to the Assyrian king? He calls him the great king as opposed to Hezekiah, who he doesn't even address as king. What does he think he's doing to stand up against Assyria? And you see in verse 4, he says from the very beginning, what is this confidence that you have? All of a sudden, you've got some strength, Hezekiah. You think you can oppose the Assyrian king? All of a sudden, you're going to leave me and you're going to go out and stand on your own? You see the parallel in your own life. I, I hope you see it. When you remember when you first gave your life to the Lord? This is what's going on behind the scene. As Satan goes, whoa, wait. Who do you think you are? Now all of a sudden you're going to go get religious on me? You're going to leave, you know, going to leave the world? You're going to go and try to be a good person now? And if you think about it, Satan still does that with us now in our own hearts. Or even sending people into our lives. Maybe family members that knew us in the past. Or friends that knew us in the past. Like, you're still doing that church thing? Who do you think you are? I know who you are. You're not like that. You think you can go and start going to church and be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes or Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes? What is this confidence that you have now all of a sudden? You can see the tactics haven't changed because here the king of Assyria, he sends out his representative and he's going to do anything and everything he can to get Hezekiah to come back. And in the same way, Satan does that to each and every one of us. He will send people, he will send situations, he will do anything that he can to get you to stop trusting in the Lord. And guess what? That never, ever stops. Those of you who have been a Christian for 20, 30 years, you, none of us could say, yep, I got it down pat. The Lord, I mean, Satan never messes with my heart anymore. Because he does. And he'll try and find a way to get to you. And if it's not through you, he'll get you through his family through your children, through your friends, through loved ones, whatever it is, the battle for Middle Earth has begun and it is not going to stop. The battle for your heart has begun and it's never going to stop. That's part of the, the you know, suffering that we go through here on this earth. So here in the, in the first instance here, it's what is this confidence that you have, Hezekiah, that you think you can oppose the great king? Let's look at a, a second challenge that he offers them, and that's in verse 5. He says, I say, your counsel and strength for war, for the war, excuse me, are only empty words. Your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. This confidence that you have where you say, I'm strong, we're going to fight you, Assyria, those are just empty words. The counsel is empty. There's no power behind it. That's what he's saying to him. That's how he's trying to get him to come back. Strike fear in him. Get him to question the counsel that he has. Get him to question the strength. He's like, maybe I'm not really that strong that I can oppose Assyria. I mean, Syria has wiped out everything else, everybody else along the way. And think about it in your own life. Think about how Satan uses that same mind game on you and it can happen in a number of ways, and I can't cover every scenario, but just thinking of a few, Satan might say this, hey, those words in your prayer, those are just empty words. There's no strength behind them. There's no power behind them. You're just kind of psyching yourself up, thinking that God hears your prayers. There's no, 
there's nothing in there. There's no power. Are those words in the Bible? Those aren't really true, man. That's man-made. Some guy wrote that like 2,000 years ago, and it's been changed over and over again. There's no power in those words. It's just a bunch of stories that help us feel better, that help us uh, you know, understand the world around us. They're just empty words. The God of Scripture, he's not real. He's just one of many gods that cultures use to help them cope with life. These are these, and there's very, you know, you, you under, hopefully understand what I'm saying, how Satan uses that same tactic, that those things that you're reading, those words that you're praying, those memory verses, those are just empty words. There's no real power behind them. The tactics of the enemy have not changed. And so the speech continues on. Even at the next, que- the next uh, question he asks in verse 5, he says, Now, on whom do you rely? In verse 5, whom do you rely that you've rebelled against me? Hey, Hezekiah, I know you can't do it on your own, but who are you relying on now that you think you're so tough that you can fight against the king of Assyria? And he, and he goes on and gives them, well, here's the people that you think you can rely on, Hezekiah. Look at verse 6. He says, Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and all who rely on him. He's basically saying, Pharaoh's not strong enough to, to withstand me, Hezekiah. You're going to go and put all your faith on Pharaoh. He is weak. He's not going to be able to withstand the king of Assyria. If you think about it, if you've been here for a while listening through uh, Isaiah, these words are exactly what Isaiah was telling King Hezekiah and all of Judah before. Hey, Egypt's not going to help you. Assyria's not going to help you. And now he's hearing it from the enemy himself. Hey, Egypt is not going to help you. Don't rely on him. But but Assyria doesn't stop there as we look on verse 7. Look at what he says. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. He's like, you say you trusted Egypt, that's not going to help you. And now you're saying you trust on the Lord your God? Look at what he says. And he's saying this to Hezekiah and to all the people. He says, is it not he, meaning the Lord, whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? What he's referencing here is that when Hezekiah came in to be a king, he started some reforms. And he started taking away all the high places, which he was supposed to do, and have, or have all of Israel only worship in one place. And so Assyria is saying, look, your king is, t- is misleading you about God. Because the Assyrians are polytheistic. They worship many gods. And they're saying, this guy took, around, took down all your altars where you could just worship the Lord anywhere and everywhere. In their eyes, they think he's misleading them about religion, which isn't true. So basically, questioning the leadership skills of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is supposed to lead you towards God, but he's taken down all these altars that are representing God, which is wrong. But this is how Assyria is thinking. Basically, again questioning Hezekiah's leadership skills and his counsel, saying you can't trust King Hezekiah and you can't trust his God. Whom do you rely on? And then moving on to verses 8 and 9, he continues on with his threats. He says, Now therefore, 
Come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Now, therefore, excuse me, how then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? What is he saying here? He's basically saying, okay, you guys are so tough. Make a bargain with me. I'm going to give you 2,000 horses so that you guys can come out and fight against me, and you can't even beat one of my uh, official, you know, one of the guys in the office, so to speak, one of my representatives. He's stronger than your entire army, Judah. You guys cannot rebel against Assyria. You cannot fight me, and you will ultimately be destroyed. In thinking of our own lives, how, you know, finding a parallel, how does Satan use this tactic and getting us to doubt our confidence, not only in God, but even in your spiritual leaders. So even in us as elders, even pastors or, or spiritual leaders in your life, Satan will try to get you to lose confidence in them as well. He may say, hey, your spiritual counselors, your pastor Robert, he's just a guy, what does he know? He's just the guy teaching this week. He can't help you. He's a man just like you. He's, he fails left and right all the time. Or anybody else that you trust in your life as your spiritual counselor, you know, any of the elders or leaders, people that pray for you, your, you know, your accountability groups, they're just people. They're not going to be able to fight for you. They're going to give you false counsel. They're going to give you the wrong advice on how to follow God. Right? They're going to tell you, oh, you can only worship the God of the Bible. Well, no, there's many gods in this world. Why do you just worship one God? Again, anything that will cause your heart to doubt, anything that will pull you away from God, Satan will use, whether it's questioning your spiritual leaders or your counselors, and ultimately even God himself. Whatever tactics will pull your heart away, they're going to be employed by our enemy. Let's, let's look now at uh, verse, verse 10. Because he's going to go to another tactic. He's actually going to say, hey, God, this is what God wants. God told me to come down here and attack you. Look at verse 10. He says, have, have I now come up without the Lord's approval against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And if you've been here going through the study, that's actually true. Didn't God say, I'm going to call Assyria, my servant, to come and destroy you? So he's actually, I don't know if he really knows it, but God's the one that called Assyria to come down and to discipline Judah. Again, it's to get them to be afraid, fearful. Oh yeah, we, Isaiah's been telling us this is going to happen. What can we do? We should go out to Assyria and we should uh, make peace with them and maybe they'll stop. But if you remember, Isaiah was telling them about this why, not so that they go out and make peace with the Syria, but so that they would come back and return to the Lord, not compromise and pledge allegiance to Assyria. This is kind of a twisting of God's word to mislead God's people. And Satan does that all the time in our lives as well. You know, churches are now misinterpreting Scripture to approve all kinds of sinfulness, right? God... You didn't mean that when he said that. You know, we cultures change. We got to progress. God changes with the times, so to speak. 
you know, twisting scripture to approve what you want to approve, you know, anything again to get you to doubt the word of God. Well, that's old. We don't live that way. We don't live by those rules anymore. And we ourselves can misuse scripture to justify our own sinfulness, right? Like, hey, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, you don't, but Christians go to church. I was trying to tell somebody that this week at work. You know, like, hey, do I have to go to church uh, to be Christian? And I said, no, you don't. You know, there's a lot of people that go to church that aren't Christians. But if you're a Christian, you're going to want to go to church. You see the difference? We don't become Christian and think of ways how to stay away from church. That's what the enemy would cause us to do, right? Put things in our, it's like, I don't have to go to church every week. I mean, let's not get crazy about it. Right? I worship the Lord in my own way, out on the beach or the park or whatever it is. Watch TV at home and watch the pastor there. We have to be careful that we let the Word of God rule our lives and not society and not even our own hearts. We can't misuse Scripture to justify our own sinful desires. And so you see that here in uh, Isaiah 36. Right? He's like, the Lord called us to come down here and called us to destroy you. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Then Eliakim and Shibna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Hey, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the, peop- or in the, hearing of the people who are on the wall. See what they're saying here? They're like, hey, speak to us in a, in a foreign language so that our people that are trusting us, they don't get scared and hear what you're saying. Speak to us in a different tongue. Because they know that, you know, if the people aren't ready for the war, then they're going to they're gonna cause Hezekiah to submit to Assyria. So these guys are saying, hey, speak to us in Aramaic and not in our, our language. And so uh, Rabshakeh seizes on this in verse 12, and he says, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you. Now he's trying to scare them. He's talking about siege. You know, ancient siege, when they would surround a city and then no food would come in and enter, people would be subject to eating their own dung and urine to survive. And so he's trying to scare them now. He's using that tactic on them. Again, saying that Hezekiah is not going to be able to save you. The God of Judah is not going to be able to save you either, right? God is on our side. God has willed that this would happen. And let's look at verses 13 through 15 now as he uses another tactic. And he's basically going to say, don't listen to Hezekiah. He's only deceiving you that he's going to deliver you. And again, telling you that God will deliver. Look at what he says. Now he's, he speaks to the people on the wall, not just to the representatives. So verse 13 Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Again, now he's telling all the people there, not just the leaders that have come out, the king, your king Hezekiah is not going to save you. He's deceiving you guys. 
in, he's deceiving you about God because God's not going to save you either. If you skip down to verse 18, here's his justification for saying why God won't deliver them. Skip down to verse 18. He says this, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Assyria has been going systematically through, uh, through the area, destroying every nation that has come up against him, and that's what he's saying. He's like, the gods of these nations have not stopped us, and your God's not going to stop us. Look at what he says. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavayim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Again, he's trying to scare them and say, nobody stopped this. Their gods have not stopped this, and your God will not stop us either. This tactic, again, can be used by Satan in our own lives. Again, going back to the point of, you know, what makes your religion right? There's many gods. Many cultures have different types of gods. And, and somebody may say, God can help them, he can help you, or he doesn't help them, he doesn't help you. Again, anything to get you to doubt in the one true God. Your religion is no different than, the, than any other religion. Or what about this? If God is so great, why doesn't he, why doesn't he get rid of poverty? If God is so great, why didn't he save your family member that was dying? If God is so great, why doesn't he answer your prayers? Why did he allow such and such to happen? Again, these are the same tactics that Satan has employed throughout human history, and he will continue to do those things for what purpose? To get us to doubt, to get us to stop trusting in the Lord, to get you to say, yeah, you know what, you're right. He didn't save you know, whoever in my family that I was praying for, that he would deliver them. Or he's allowed this to happen in my life. Why did God do that? Maybe he's not that great after all. I know a lot of famous atheists, usually that's the springboard for their atheism, is they had a parent who died, and they were praying, and they were believers, and God didn't save them, and so there is no such thing as God. If God can't save them, then he's not that great. And so again, this is what the king of Assyria is doing to Judah to get them to be fearful and to doubt. So what is Assyria's solution for them? Hey, this is what you need to do. Go back to verse 16. So in order to avoid all this, this is a solution. Verse 16, he says this. Do not, uh, at the end of verse 16... He says, make your peace with me. Again, don't listen to Hezekiah, says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out to me. And look at what he says. And each of, and each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and of new wine and a land of bread and vineyards. So the solution is this, hey, in order for none of this stuff to happen, you guys just come out to us, make your peace with us, and we're going to let you stay in your land for a little while until the king comes and he takes you, and he's going to take you to something better than this land that you have. Basically, he's, 
He's telling them, you know, you guys can have your cake and you can eat it too if you surrender your hearts to Shennacherib. Because the Assyrian army was known for taking the people from the land and putting them in a new land. And he's promising them it's going to be better. And do you think it's really going to be better? Do you think he's just going to go in and say, yeah, come on, everybody live with us? No, he's not. Isn't this the same tactic the enemy uses in our own lives? Hey, you don't need to go to church. Come out with us. It's better over here, man. It's too restrictive in the church. It's all those, it's legalistic. It's do not do this, don't do that, don't do that. I mean, come on, look at us. We're having fun out here. We get to do what we want. These things don't stop. Again, they're the same tactics you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, just stop following God. What has it gotten you? You know, Satan promises a better life by tempting you to leave God or to doubt God's goodness. Look, at God isn't providing for your family by you doing things the right way. If you would just cheat a little here or do this here, I'll take care of you. I mean, look at everybody else that's prospering in the world and they don't follow God. God is keeping you from living up to your full potential. Living the Christian life doesn't provide all that you really want, does it? You're kind of restricted. God doesn't really provide deliverance. You really think he's going to deliver you? I mean, look at the world. The world's going the opposite way of God. You need to get with the times and be moving. Stop listening to your pastor. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So much better out here. This is the very first lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Here's a perfect example. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, look at what he says, Indeed has God said, You should not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And look at what the serpent says. The serpent says to the woman, You surely won't die. Again, don't listen to God. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not really true, what your parents have been telling you about life, what your pastor's been telling you about the world. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is what the king of Assyria is. Hey, don't listen to Hezekiah and his God. Just come out. Come outside those walls. We're going to give you what you want and we're going to give you something so much better. Again, Satan's been using that lie from the very beginning, and maybe he's using it on you in your own life right now. Hey, again, come out from church, man. I wait till you move out from your parents' house. You get to do what you want. You don't need to follow those rules anymore about God and going to church and Bible study and youth group. So much better out here in the world. Come out to come out from out come out from there. So what is the solution? That's Satan's solution. Just stop going to church and come live like us. Because everyone else, it's party time. It's, sent, it's the best life. So what did they do? 
Let's go back to our text in, in Isaiah. Um, and let's look at verse 21. So verse 21, But they were silent and answered him not a word. So after Rabshakeh said this, they just kept quiet. But I guess they were instructed to do that because it says, For the king's command was don't answer him. Sometimes it's better just not to answer right away, right? Just let's think about this. Verse 22, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told them the words of Rabshakeh. So they came mourning. They're, they're afraid, and rightly so. Assyrians, Assyria is pretty tough. And everything that the Assyrian has said so far about their destruction is true. And so they're rightly afraid. And so what happens? Look at verse 37. They go to the king and tell him all these words. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Well, that's a good thing, Hezekiah. So Hezekiah also mourns. He's probably scared. He goes, where, where do people go when they're afraid in life? They come back to church. I remember talking to somebody a few, years, or a few weeks ago about... Uh, when the Gulf War first happened, like in, I think, like, I don't remember now, 89, 90, before some of you were born, um, and I was going to Harvest and Riverside, I tell you what, there were people, all the teenagers sat in the floor in the middle aisles because that church, Harvest, you know how big it is, was completely packed. Why? Because everybody was scared. Everybody thought it was the end of the world, and people run to church. And maybe we do that too, right? We run to God when it's rightly so. But people that haven't been to church in a while, when bad things happen, they don't know what to do. I guess I need to go to church. And that's what Hezekiah is doing. He goes into the house of the Lord. He's scared. Look at verse 2. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Hey, all of a sudden, Isaiah's, everyone wants to talk to Isaiah, the guy that nobody wanted to listen to for so long, right? It's like that, too. If you're in your life, maybe you're the, you're the only Christian in somebody's life, and when bad things happen, who do they come to? They come to talk to you, the person that's been faithfully serving God, or, or at least their representative in their life about God. Hey, can you pray for me? Which is great. That's what you want. But that's what people do. When they don't know what to do, they... They, they come to church. They run to the Christian in their life. And look at what happens, verse 3. Then they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke and rejection, for the children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. He realizes, and this is how we win the battle ourselves. This is our application this morning. How do we win this battle for our hearts? when we're facing doubt and fear about the Christian, our Christian walk and our salvation, don't rely on your own strength. That's number one. Do not rely on yourself. This is what Hezekiah said. We, there's no, we're, we don't know what to do, man. We're going to church. We're going to Isaiah. We're tearing our clothes. We're mourning. And look at what he says in verse 4. Perhaps the Lord your God talking to Isaiah, will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Syria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the word which the Lord God has heard. 
Therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So not only how do we win the battle is don't rely on our own strength, but we need to rely on God. And that's what they're doing here. And one way that we rely on God is by praying. We pray with others. We ask others to pray for us. And we pray ourselves. That's what Hezekiah is doing. He's like, hey, let's all go to, Hezekiah. Let's all go to Isaiah. Let's ask him to pray. Let's all pray. That's, that's partly what prayer is all about, showing that you don't have the answers, that you need God. God doesn't need your prayer. Our prayer is mostly for ourselves. It's demonstrating our reliance upon God and not ourselves. And so that's what's going on here in the text. Verse 5 says, So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And here is Isaiah's word to them in verse 6. Isaiah says to them, Thus you shall say to your master, meaning Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servant of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me, blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So basically, hey, don't worry about this guy. These things that he says are just empty words. Those are just empty words, really. Because God is going to do something, and as we know in world history, Assyria, for some reason, and they don't know why, stops at the door of Jerusalem and leaves. Just leaves. Unexplainable. Here's the reason why. Because God intervened on behalf of his people. So how do we win this battle? We don't rely on our own strength, and we rely on God. And one of those ways is through prayer, and the other way is by trusting in God's word. These are words that Isaiah said to the servants of King Hezekiah, and he had to believe them. Now, for the most part, we don't have you know, a prophet speaking the word of God to us like that, but we have God's written word, which they did not have back then. This is God's word to us now. When we want to hear God speak, we read God's word. That's how God speaks to us now. And we need to wait on the Lord through prayer and by reading God's word. And it's not so much that these words are magical in themselves, but it's, it's not the, the word of God that is powerful, but it's the God of the word that is powerful. It is the God behind the word that is powerful. It's because God said it and you believe him and you trust him. It's not empty words. It's the God behind the word. And so this is what was told to Hezekiah to trust. But even after that, and this happens in our own life, even after we have a great, you know, uh, so to speak, spiritual experience, what usually happens? Satan comes to attack us again, and that's what happens here. Look at this in verse 37. So after they've heard these words, in verse uh, 8 of chapter 37, then Rabshakeh returned. So he comes right back. He found the king of Assyria fighting in Libna, or against Libna, for he had heard the king had left Lachish. And when he heard them saying concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. See, even after you get that word of God, Satan still comes, and that's what's happening here for Assyria, or for Judah. 
Behold, you have heard the kings of Assyria, what they have done to all the lands, destroying them. So you will not be spared. You will not be spared. And so how do we win this battle? We, rely on our, we don't rely on our own strength. We rely on God's strength. And we rely on God by praying and by trusting in His Word. Right? We need to listen to God's Word for a number of reasons because it's in God's Word and we won't have time to look at these cross-references. But they're gonna, I would encourage you to read Psalm 119 because in Psalm 119, almost every verse talks about the Word of God. So hearing the Word of God, just let me give you four points here. Hearing the Word of God keeps us from wandering, Psalm 119, 9 and 10. Hearing the Word of God keeps us from sinning, Psalm 119, 11. Hearing the Word of God gives us strength, 119, 28. And hearing the Word of God keeps us, comforts us, and revives us, Psalm 119, verse 50. And again, it's not just the words themselves, as I mentioned. It's because of God Himself. It's in the Word of God that we learn who God is. We learn about the character of God and how He acts. We can't trust what our eyes see we need to trust in what the Word of God says. And this is where we learn about God, about His character, about His love, about how He operates in this world, and we need to trust it. So when we're faced with doubt and fear, let us not give in to these temptations and the threats the enemies use. Instead, let us run to the Lord in prayer, and let us cling to the promises of His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You once again. For this moment, this morning that we have to come and to worship you and to hear about you through the reading and proclamation of your word. And I pray this morning, Lord God, for each and every person in this room, for there is a battle for our hearts that has not only begun, but it is raging and it will never end. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you would guard and protect our hearts. And when we doubt or when we are fearful, Lord, that we would run to you, run to your word, run to our brothers and sisters for prayer and, and find comfort because you are the God of all creation. I pray also, Lord God, for those this morning who have not yet trusted in you, that they would do so, that they would not let the enemy keep them from you, that if there is a stirring in their heart this morning, Lord God, that they would come forward and pray with us and they would come out and surrender to you and not to the king of Assyria and to the temptations of this world. Help them to trust in you and to learn about you through the reading of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.